0: Good evening, the most intensive manhunt in New York City's history is over. The
1: police have arrested a man they say is son of Sam. On August 11th, 1977, 24-year-old David Berkowitz, a mild-mannered postal worker who lived alone, was captured outside of his Yonkers apartment.
0: You're only going to get hurt. He had
1: just walked up to his
0: car, a car containing that 44 caliber bulldog revolver, a submachine gun, and
1: notes from Son of Sam. As a gun was pointed at Berkowitz's head, he would utter these infamous words. His only comment, what took you so long? And later, as he was paraded past a crowd outside of police headquarters, almost all the news reports would note one very curious detail. He was wearing an open sport shirt and he was smiling.
2: He was smiling as he was brought in. He had a faint smile as police moved him around the city from rest to booking to court.
1: But why? Why was the man who had just spent 13 months eluding police in one of the largest manhunts in New York City history smiling? That was the question Maury Terry kept asking me as we sat in his Yonkers apartment.
3: 1981, a private investigator sends me a big folder, which is in my files in there someplace.
1: Maury had spent nearly four decades delving into the Son of Sam attacks and felt he knew the truth better than anyone. According to Maury's theory, Berkowitz was smiling because he was giddy in knowing the truth behind an incredible secret that despite what the whole world believed, he didn't act alone, that there were a number of accomplices in the Son of Sam attacks. And now he was about to complete his mission as a soldier of Satan. He was about to confess to a series of crimes that would change the course of history. And although I didn't quite believe Maury at the time, I couldn't stop thinking maybe he was right about Berkowitz and that mysterious smile. I'm Josh Zeman, and this is Searching for the Sons of Sam. Episode 2, Knock on Coffins. Hopefully many of you are here because you've seen our new Netflix series, The Sons of Sam. And I highly suggest watching at least the first episode before continuing any further. Because each of these podcast episodes is an even deeper dive into Gotham's most infamous murder spree, where he spent a lifetime trying to unravel this case so you can only imagine how much more there is to tell. But be warned, this isn't an investigation to be taken lightly. And above all else, once you go down the rabbit hole, the most important thing to remember is how to get back out. Now they say that every society gets the criminal it deserves. And nowhere is this more true than with New York City in the 1970s, and the infamous gunman known as the Son of Sam. The attacks exposed a Big Apple that was rotting from its core, from a murder rate that was spiraling out of control to streets piled high with mountains of garbage. But there was something else about New York City that was emblematic of the Son of Sam, and that was sex. Sex, drugs, and in this case, disco. Disco. Take, for example, the Bee Gees' disco classic Staying Alive, released on December 13th, 1977. The song, written for the film Saturday Night Fever, became one of the most well-known dance tracks ever created. However, the lyrics don't really talk about dance at all. feel the city breaking and everybody shaking. We're staying alive, staying alive. The lyrics were an homage, in part, to the panic created by the son of Sam. But they were also a nod to a city that was living on the edge, that wasn't afraid to strut its stuff and get down and dirty.
4: In the New York scene around the late 70s, the whole idea is you can't be transgressive enough. You have to keep going, and things have to be even more radical than the last thing around. This
1: is a cult author, Gary Lackman, who's also the former bassist for the pioneering punk band Blondie. Gary is filling me in on what New York City was like in 1977, and whether it was punk or disco, how the whole scene had this devil-may-care attitude about sex and sin was almost dangerous.
4: When I was hanging out there, places like the nursery, which didn't open till like four in the morning, this place called Plato's Retreat, which was supposed to be a big free love, sex in the dark club. And then, you know, in the gay scene, there was the whole very, very dark, violent kind of s and sort of world. All these worlds kind of overlapped. The idea was to be transgressive, was to go beyond the rules. Are you bold enough, you know, uh, tough enough to kind of face this kind of challenge? Then I'm not surprised that uh, more than one occasion things
0: got out of hand.
1: And from this culture of depravity and debauchery came the son of Sam's reign, which began with five initial shootings.
0: The first victim was killed in front of her Bronx apartment building last July 29th. She was 18-year-old Donna Loria, who was sitting in a parked car with a friend late at night when her parents heard the shots.
3: Almost three months later, 1.30 a.m., a a Saturday morning, Rosemary Keenan and Carl Dinaro were sitting in Miss Keenan's Volkswagen. The son of Sam sprang and fired bullets ripped into Donaro's head and hand. A month later, November
5: 27th, at 12.30 a.m., Belrose, mm. Queens, 18-year-old Joanne Lamino and her 17-year-old friend Donna DiMasi were wounded by 44 caliber slugs as they sat outside the Lamino home. Christine Froon, 26 years old, is dead in a shooting that has no apparent motive. On March 8th at a quarter of 8 in the evening, 19-year-old Virginia Vosker Sheehan was shot to death, mm. half a block from the scene of Christine Froon murder. The police say this is a senseless killing. There is no suspect, certainly no motive.
1: Nine victims, four wounded, three dead, and two unharmed, and all seemingly unrelated. That was until the NYPD made a startling announcement.
2: We have determined... That there has been a 44 caliber revolver used in every one of them, which is why it's important that any person having information with respect to anyone who's in possession of a 44 caliber revolver call us.
1: Now what's interesting here is just how unfamiliar the NYPD was with this new criminal phenomenon. How at first they didn't even use the words serial killer. The killer police
5: are looking for is called the 44 caliber killer because of the weapon he has used.
1: Because, believe it or not, serial killers were still pretty rare in 1977, especially on the East Coast. San Francisco had the Zodiac in 68. Seattle had Bundy in 75. But remarkably, New York City hadn't had their own celebrity serial killer case. So, to catch the Sloan gunman, the NYPD set up this very cool sounding Omega Task Force, and then they waited for him to strike again, which he did on April seventeenth, nineteen seventy-seven. Here's Detective Joseph Pirelli, former captain of Operation Omega. I'm home at night, phone rings. It's about
0: two or three in the morning, and one of the detectives, Joe Coffey, called me. He says, "We got another one up in the Bronx." And the interesting thing there is, there are two people killed, a male and a female. There's a letter at the scene addressed to me. The letter was inside the car and when they pulled the male victim out, the letter fell onto the street. We read the letter.
2: Dear Mr. Borelli, I am deeply hurt by your calling me a woman hater. I am not, but I am a monster. I am the son of Sam.
0: You know, it's unusual for a killer to communicate with a police officer.
1: I mean, you see it in movies all the time, but in reality, it it barely happens. Borelli's comment about this being something out of a movie is worth noting. But first, let's talk about the letter itself, which had been scrawled in sloppy print with sentences that veered up and down across the page with words that were Purposely misspelled, and a tone that just felt juvenile. Looking at the letters 44 years later, it almost seems contrived, like it was using all the Hollywood tropes to make it look like it came from some childlike serial killer. Here's the letter again
2: I am a little brat. When Father Sam gets drunk, he gets mean. He beats his family. Sometimes he ties me up to the back of the house. Other times he locks me in the garage. Sam loves to drink blood. Go out and kill, commands Father Sam.
1: Now the killer leaving this note is a huge deal. It's where he first identifies himself, which drove Maury crazy. Because he thought the answer to this whole mystery was so clearly laid out right in that first letter. I am the son of Sam. But what's important here is that the NYPD never made this letter public.
3: The first son of Sam letter contained enough clues in it uh, that if the letter had been released, the case could have ended four months before it did. That was another mistake by the
1: police department. We can assume the NYPD didn't make this public because they didn't want the inevitable panic that would come from a letter that threatened to rape and kill the women of Queens. So what does the son of Sam do in response? He sends a second letter.
0: The only substantial clues so far have been two letters, including one mailed to the New York Daily News.
1: The killer chose Breslin as
0: his conduit to a larger public.
1: So why send this letter to the press? Maybe because he wanted to make sure that this time, his message of terror was actually going to reach the people.
2: Hello from the gutters of New York, which are filled with dog manure, vomit, stale wine, urine, and blood. Hello from the sewers of New York City, which swallow up these delicacies.
1: Now what's amazing is how this letter looks and sounds different from the first. Suddenly his penmanship is flawless, with sentences that are articulate and well composed. So much so, even the reporters took notice. His letter to Jimmy Breslin indicates a true gift for words and a precise command of the English
4: language.
0: He probably is the first killer that I can ever recall who who understands the use of the semicolon.
1: And naturally, this letter with its graphic imagery of killing did send New Yorkers into a frenzy, the likes of which no one had ever seen.
5: It could be me. I don't want to be
3: the next victim.
5: I don't feel free to go out to walk the streets or go out at all.
3: I know what it is to walk around in my childhood without any problems and happy-go-lucky, but no longer.
1: Now, in today's serial killer-obsessed world, there's hundreds of books, movies, and, of course, TV shows about criminal profiling, including Mindhunter, which is based on the early work of the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit. I'm
0: Special Agent Tench. This is Special Agent Ford. This isn't an interrogation, Mr. Manson. What we're interested in is your relationship with your family.
1: But as the Son of Sam attacks were unfolding, the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit was just getting started. And agents Robert Ressler and John Douglas wouldn't interview Berkowitz until after he was caught, which meant in those early days, the NYPD to go at it alone. The only way he can act out his total inadequacy is to go out and to kill. To, to him, this is the equivalent of sex. Now, the voice you just heard was that of Harvey Schlossberg, a former patrolman turned psychologist who was the NYPD's first official cop profiler. But what's important to us is his assessment of the son of Sam. In an analytic sense, symbolic sense, the shooting is the orgasm, and the revolver itself, the gun itself, of course, is the symbolic phallus. Now, whether this overtly Freudian profile of phalluses and orgasms was true or not, Morey believed it only showed how officials were grasping at straws. In fact, all the NYPD could really do was wait for the killer to strike again.
3: An element of fear pervades neighborhoods which have not known fear before. People wouldn't come
4: out at night. They're really scared. And I mean, when they're scared, that's all they do is talk about the
1: killer. Now, for a city that had just been on the brink of bankruptcy and was still reeling from a catastrophic blackout, the Son of Sam attacks were economically devastating. The streets were empty, and the businesses were hurting, especially the theaters, restaurants, restaurants. And of course, the discos. Which brings us back to Maury, pulled up in his Yonkers apartment. Now, as many of you probably know, our series is as much about the mythologies of the Son of Sam case as it is about Maury Terry's investigation. And Maury was always trying to change the narrative, the one that had been put out by the police and then cemented by the public and the press.
3: I mean, the shots fired that night were only fired at Christine. Nobody aimed
1: at Johnson. Right, nobody aimed at him.
4: These are all elements. It's great stuff. Yeah. But? But it's it's an indictment of the New York City Police Department. Fuck that. They're the ones who covered it up.
1: And for many, this mythology starts with a glaring omission. A series of crimes that occurred up in Yonkers that not a lot of people talk about. According to Yonkers police, someone was terrorizing local residents, sending them crazy letters, firebombing their houses, and even shooting their dogs. And that included a local businessman named Sam Carr, whose dog Harvey was shot, as well as an auxiliary policeman named Craig Glassman, whose apartment door had been set ablaze. Now, the Yonkers police quickly noticed that the harassing letters had similar references to killing as the son of Sam letters, and even similar handwriting, prompting them to look at one David Berkowitz, who was discovered had once written a letter to Sam Carr complaining about his barking dog, and was also Craig Glassman's upstairs neighbor.
3: Greg, why didn't you ever go upstairs and say, why are you bugging me? Because I was told by the sheriff, you know, not to be involved with him at this time, seeing the investigation was going on, just to keep an eye on him. Did you? Yes, I started checking out his car. His, uh, one day I'd gone by his car, looked in, and on the floor was a, a yellow pad. and There were four lines of writing on it and it struck my eye right away, and the writing looked exactly the same. I mean, he was being very
1: blatant, leaving something like that right out in the open. Eventually, the Yonkers police brought their concerns to the Omega Task Force, as did Sam Carr, yet both tips were ignored. Then on July 25th, the Yonkers PD would reach out to the FBI to request Berkowitz's fingerprints. However, before the FBI could answer, the son of Sam would suddenly change his M.O., with another shooting, but this time in Brooklyn.
4: Stacy Moskowitz, 20 years old, blonde. Robert Violante, also age 20, both shot twice in the head as they sat in their car in the Brooklyn section of New York.
5: The boy kept crying, help me, help me, and I can't see. And he's saying, but why? I didn't do anything. This shouldn't have happened to me.
1: Once the Moskowitz shooting happened, all hell broke loose because number one, the son of Sam had struck right in the heart of the five boroughs. Number two, the killer had eluded thousands of police to show he could strike anywhere. And number three, the victim count kept growing, leading some detectives to start voicing off the record what had been a deeply held suspicion.
0: As one cop told me, we haven't been able to catch one of them. Just imagine if we were after two.
1: Yes, there had been a rumor in the Omega Squad that they were actually chasing two killers. But that concern was quelled nine days later when police would catch a lucky break. I'm very pleased to announce that the people of the city of New York can rest easy this morning because of
5: the
3: fact that the police have captured a man whom they believe to be the son of Sam.
1: But there's another myth in the Son of Sam saga that's been spread far and wide, and that's this idea that catching Berkowitz was one of the greatest feats of detective work in the history of the NYPD, and furthermore, that he was caught through the simplest of all clues, a parking ticket.
0: And this is what they say tripped up the 44 caliber killer, a parking ticket.
5: On July 31st, 1977, Cecilia Davis of Brooklyn was walking her dog. The same night Stacy Moskowitz was murdered, she later recollected that she had seen patrolmen ticketing cars in the same area that night. And with that information, the police computers went into motion and the pieces of a massive and mysterious puzzle began to fit together.
3: Dick Schaap tells what happened when police went to look at that car. The detectives looked inside the car and saw the butt of a submachine gun sticking out of a gunny sack. They got
4: a warrant for the arrest of David Berkowitz.
1: Now I know I sound like Mori here, but frankly, that story is bullshit. And that's because initially the NYPD never thought that Berkowitz had anything to do with the crimes. They only thought he was a possible eyewitness. So the NYPD calls Berkowitz's apartment over and over again to no response, until finally they call the Yonkers PD, which results in an almost unbelievable coincidence. Here's author Lawrence Klausner to explain.
4: The daughter of Sam Carr. Works for the Yonkers Police Department. She's not a police officer, she's a dispatcher. So she answers their telephone. Now remember, the detectives in New York are just asking the guys in Yonkers to go over, tell them, please call us, we're trying to get a hold of you. And they say, we want you to go to David Berkowitz, and they give the address. And she says, Berkowitz. You don't have to tell me. I, I'll tell you. And she gives a little background of things that have happened, a whole series of circumstances that they knew nothing about, and they compile a complete profile of this guy in Yonkers who's set fire to an apartment of a deputy sheriff, and now they know they have something. And a couple hours later, they capture the son of Sam.
1: This woman, was what what's
4: her name? Wheat Carr. Wheat Carr is the daughter of Sam Carr, the psychological antagonist
1: of David Berkowitz. So Berkowitz wasn't caught because of a ticket, but more so because of Sam Carr's daughter. Yet in almost all the press coverage, it's as if the NYPD had their sights on Berkowitz beforehand. Nor is there any mention of the Yonkers police already talking to the FBI. And later, when asked about it, the NYPD tries to skirt the fact that they missed these intelligence reports.
2: Captain, uh, we're just talking to Frank McLaughlin. He indicates that you were the key person. You were the one who put the tip from Yonkers and
3: the tip from Brooklyn on the parking ticket together. Can you tell us what happened and when it happened? Is that what Commissioner McLaughlin said? No, uh, but, well, it didn't go down exactly like that. You tell us what what happened. Well, that's something partly. Uh, I wouldn't rather comment at all on that right now. Well, so uh, tell us how the piece of information. Well, came the, to the, you. the name was similar. You know, oh, that that came to us again. You know, we had that name, and then we check it out, and there's the name. I hate to do it, but I cut for a second. I just need. Okay. Can you tell us then what happened? Well, the name Berkowitz was uh, on the information from Yankers and the name Berkowitz popped up in the editor computers for the uh, for the summons and all. So, uh, being aware of the the, the the two names being the same individual. At what
1: point yesterday did you realize the
3: this coincidence? Wasn't yesterday, this was before yesterday.
1: Now, does that sound like one of the greatest feats of police work in history, or just blind luck?
2: This is the man police believe to be the son of Sam. He is David Berkowitz. He was smiling as he was brought in.
1: Which brings us back to the mystery of Berkowitz's smile. And what would become the greatest and most often repeated myth in the Son of Sam case. The confession that would change history.
5: Tell all the people who think talk a talking
4: dog was behind Right. I mean, I mean, the whole case is shit. If that's not a story, I don't know what.
1: Now, there's no denying that on the night Berkowitz was arrested, he made his bizarre claim first to the police and then to the DAs. And here's Detective Bill Clark, who actually spoke with Berkowitz, to tell us what he said. I
0: reflect back to sitting down talking to
1: him, and
4: I see that how happy he is to be there that day. And it's hard to believe that somebody is going to go to jail for the rest of their life couldn't have been happier to get all this attention. This guy is just overjoyed, you know.
1: I mean, what did he say?
4: He discussed these things about it was a neighbor's dog that was telling him crying for blood. That's why he did it. And he said that he had shot the dog and killed it. A couple of days later he was back and he realized that this Sam Carr, the owner of this dog was a 6,000 year old being talking to him through this dog calling for blood.
1: Did you believe this whole 6,000-year-old demon story?
4: I believed he believed it, yeah. I did. Uh, I did.
1: Did he ever say that there was anybody else involved? Absolutely not, no. He he totally said he was the Lone Ranger. But not everyone was so convinced. Queens District Attorney John Santucci later told Maury, quote, I wasn't happy with the case the minute they brought Berkowitz in. It was all too smooth and too easy, end quote. Which brings us to the ultimate question. Was everyone, the police, the DAs, so eager to close this case that they accepted Berkowitz's claim without question? More so, was this really the ravings of a madman? Or much like that first letter, the ravings of someone who wanted to make themselves look like a madman? Whatever the answer, the infamous demon-dog story was born. A story that's been often repeated in the press and in popular culture. Including Spike Lee's film, The Summer of Sam.
4: No! no! Shut that dog up! No! What do you
2: want? I want you to go out and kill. I will kill. I will kill.
1: Maury always felt that everyone, the police, the press, had bought this story hook, line, and sinker. And more so, they missed the clues that either Berkowitz or somebody else had been planting all along. Here's Phil Amicone, Maury Terry's brother-in-law.
0: Maury was actually reading the letters that were being sent into the newspapers to Jimmy Breslin. They clearly had clues in them that somebody, whether it was David Berkowitz or somebody else, was trying to send as a way of leading on the police to try and find him. And Maury had come around to realizing that it was probably
1: somewhere in Yonkers. And Maury told me the same story as well, that he had found a code. Apparently, in the end of the second letter, there was this section, a postscript that didn't match the tone of the rest. And it read, PSJB. That's Joe Borelli. Please inform all the other detectives working on the case that I wish them luck. And then there's these five phrases with quotes around them. Keep on digging, drive on, think positive, get off your butts, knock on coffins. Now, to Mori, these phrases seem disjointed, but it was the words keep, drive, get off, knock that jumped out. Mori had a hunch they were directions. He just didn't know to where. When
0: David Berkowitz was finally arrested in Yonkers and Maury found out where he was actually living and he started to go back through those same letters. I remember him doing that, showing Kay and me and his parents. And if you followed Maury's logic, it made whole sense that what somebody was doing was giving you almost a roadmap right up to David Berkowitz's residence.
1: Locating Pine Street, where Berkowitz lived on a map, Maury used basic word association to unlock the code. Let's start with knock-on coffins. Well, coffins are traditionally made out of pine wood. And Berkowitz lived on Pine Street, so knock-on coffins, knock-on pine. And then Maury backtracked along the map to the next street, Ashburton Avenue. And then he went back to the letter, get off your butts, or butts as in cigarettes, as in ash. So, get off your butts, get off on Ashburton. And then he went to the next phrase think positive. Well, think is also head, and positive is also right. So, think positive, head right. And on and on it went until finally he wrote it all out Look for me home, North Avenue, head right, get off on Ash, knock on Pine. Now, when he brought you this stuff, were you like, oh my God, you're crazy? I was stunned
0: that first we thought, eh, it's a stretch. But the more he would pursue it, the more we were convinced that there was absolutely substance to what he was talking about.
1: Now, I don't know if I would have ever believed Maury if I hadn't spoken to a supervisor in the Yonkers Police Department named Mike Novotny, who also told me that a number of Yonkers cops also believed that there were directions in these letters. But what made Maury different was that he didn't just stop with this map. In fact, he was just getting started. Maury
0: saw things in a lot of the writings. that gave him an indication it was more than just this one person. That registered with him, even though it should have registered with others and seems not to have.
1: The next clue with the mysterious aliases that were also referenced in the second letter. Here's how it read.
2: Here are some names to help you along. The Duke of Death, the Wicked King Wicker, the 22 Disciples of Hell, John Wheaties, Rapist and Suffocator of Young Girls.
1: Now that last name, John Wheaties, that's the one that stood out to Maury.
3: After Berkowitz got arrested, I very quickly learned that one of the aliases of Son of Sam, it was not an alias at all, but actually the nickname of a real person. That turned out to be John Carr, who was the real-life Son of Sam.
1: Now, Maury knew John Carr in high school, and he knew that he was nicknamed Wheaties after his sister, Wheat Carr. And then the other alias, the Duke of Death, which Maury believed... Was a reference to John's younger brother, Michael, who fancied himself a Russian noble. He even had four credit cards under the name Baron Dzarnowski. And finally, the Wicked King Wicker. Now, the Cars lived at the corner of Warburton and Wicker Street, and Maury assumed that the Wicked King Wicker was probably a reference to Papa Sam, Sam Carr. But the NYPD also thought it could be a reference to the folk horror film, The Wicker Man. So they arrange for a screening, which probably freaked them out even more.
0: Well, don't you see that killing me is not going to bring back your apples? Well, go on, man, tell them, tell them
2: it won't!
4: I know it will.
2: Well, don't you understand that if your crops fail this year, next year you're going to have to have another
0: blood sacrifice? In the name of God? Think what you're doing?!
1: Now, maybe, as some suggest, this letter was simply the ravings of a madman. And the names Berkowitz gave as clues, John Wheaties, the Duke of Death, and Wicked King Wicker, were actually just meaningless. And I probably would have agreed if it wasn't for the sketches.
5: Just two days ago, police released their latest artist drawing of The Son of Sam. But does it look like David Berkowitz? Well,
1: not really. For Maury, and for a lot of people, the sheer number of different individual sketches over eight in all was a huge issue, and even more so, just how little Berkowitz resembled any of the sketches. Even the mayor, Abe Beam, mentioned the discrepancy.
2: Well, I was a little surprised that uh, I saw
1: a person of his stature. He seemed to be a very well-built and heavy person. And uh, he didn't resemble the second set, the recent set of sketches, but he apparently, from what I saw, resembled the first sketch. Now, there seems to be some consensus that Berkowitz matched the first sketch, which makes sense, considering, spoiler alert, that's one of the shootings Berkowitz admitted to pulling the trigger on. Which brings us to the third shooting.
3: Donna DeMassi and Joanne Lamino were standing on the stoop of Miss Lamino's
4: home in Belrose. Son of Sam approached, he started to speak, stopped, began firing.
1: He hit Donna DeMassi in the neck, Joanne Lamino in the back. Both survived, Joanne Lamino is paralyzed. For Maury, the DeMassi-Lamino shooting was critical because both girls hadn't been out drinking, nor were they sitting in a car. They were out in the open, and both had turned to the shooter as he opened fire. Additionally, both women sketched the same identical face. Only one girl said the shooter's hair was parted to the left, and the other to the right. Now, this was the best sketch the NYPD had, and you see it everywhere. It's up in the police stations, on the Omega Squad's walls. It's in an NYPD training video. And it's the sketch that the artist himself said would look most like the killer.
3: The time is 8.40. We are at 86-29 262nd Street to interview Donna DeMassa with regard to the incident in which she was involved.
1: Now, Donna never had any reason to believe her attacker wasn't Berkowitz. But we've since uncovered an interview with Donna conducted by Queens District Attorney John Santucci's office in 1979 after... He reopened the Son of Sam case.
3: Donald, could you start us out on the date of the incident as to what occurred, what you did that day up until the time you were shot?
1: Now, we received this interview through a FOIA request. It's never been heard publicly before, right now. And it contains a number of startling revelations.
5: At night, Joanne and I went into the city to see a movie. We came home on the bus as we approached her house. I noticed a man standing on a corner. So I went up to her doorstep and we were talking at her, on her uh, porch. And then the man came up and he shot Joanne and then he shot
1: me. Next, the investigator asks about the shooter's hair, knowing that Berkowitz has curly hair and John Carr had straight hair.
0: The person you saw that night had curly hair
5: no, he, what I remembered about him was his eyes. He was had very weird looking eyes, and I remembered he was an older man. Uh, I remember he was about 5'10", 5, 5'11". 5, I remember he had dark hair. That's yeah. how, when I seen him, his hair was, not I don't, I don't remember, I don't think it was curly, it was more like that. That's how I drew it, that's how I seen it.
3: In other words, as you recollect the incident, person that shot you had straight hair rather than curly hair. Right. Now, is this the picture of the individual who shot you, or is it David Bergowitz? Now, was it a person who looked like this that shot you?
5: Okay, but he, his eyes on that picture was the same as i say, yes, it was who shot me. But they were showing me so many pictures at that time, it was confusing me.
1: And finally, the investigator tries to determine whether the shooter was right or left-handed. Originally, Donna had said the shooter was right-handed, which made sense since Berkowitz was right-handed.
3: Remember which hand he took the gun out of his pocket with? Uh, his right hand. Which hand would you say I'd, I'd be taking the gun out? On the side or this side? I'm pretty sure it
5: was the right, the right side.
3: This side, yeah. It's my left side.
5: Okay, on your left side, I, I think where I really was standing.
3: If I stand up in front of you, point with your hand which side it would be.
5: Yeah, but I was facing the. All right, I'd say that's not
3: right. Which would be my left side? It's the left side.
1: Berkowitz was right handed, but John Carr was left handed. What what was he wearing?
5: As I remember, he was wearing a dark jacket. It looked long, like an army jacket. That's it. It was, it was, in the winter, it was cold, very cold that night. It was
3: very windy and cold. When you say it was a dark army jacket, you mean a blue or green or beige, brown? I think it
5: was green. It was green.
1: Now, there's very few publicly known photos of John Carr, two or three at most. And the two photos we show over and over again in our series... One picture is of John Carr wearing a standard military-issue long olive green army jacket.
0: Mari was the kind of person you could count on always. But when Mari got his teeth into something that he wanted to get answers for or pursue, he didn't let go. Mari really did... Believed that it went beyond David Berkowitz. He really did believe that there were other people involved, and just being told, no, we've got the right person by New York City police or anyone else, that wasn't good enough for him. Maury was relentless in pursuing the right thing, and it became the main focus of his life. He didn't give it up.
1: A few weeks after my last lunch meeting with Maury, he had taken I turned for the worse and now was in a hospital which was just down the road from his Yonkers apartment. He'd been diagnosed with pneumonia, though I believe he'd been secretly sneaking cigarettes. I went to visit Maury, and as I was led up into the sunroom, as it was called, there he was in his hospital bed, looking like death warmed over. Almost immediately, he asked me about the documentary— which I brushed off not wanting to get into the fact that I still didn't quite believe him at some point during that visit Maury turned to stare out the window and point look down there he said so I went to the window and about a hundred yards away I could see a decrepit stone garden on the shores of the Hudson River that's Untermyer Park said Maury that's where they went to meet and to make their plans. Kind of got this faraway look into his eye as he muttered to himself. The nurses, just ask the nurses, he said. They'll tell you how they could hear the chanting that was coming from down below on those hot summer nights in 1977. 1977.
2: four-part Netflix docu-series, The Sons of Sam, A Descent into Darkness, is streaming now on Netflix. Go watch and join us here on Wednesdays and Fridays for new episodes as we go deeper down the rabbit hole. This podcast is a production of Netflix and Tenderfoot TV in association with Gigantic Studios. Thanks for listening.